Tonight, we thank you for the fact that the evidence is so clear that if we will open our eyes and see all the goodness and all the things that you have given us, we can see your goodness and see how faithful you have been to us as a church, as individuals, every step of the way. God, I thank you for your goodness. And I just would pray that tonight we are able to open our eyes and see that. And if we have not experienced that, we've not understood that, that we can see that tonight. Lord, I just pray you'll be with the kids as they leave, as they go down to the kids' barn, that you'll be in that place, that your presence will be there. They will encounter you in a real and life-changing way. Lord, be with the teachers. Be with them as they teach and as they pour into our kids, that their lives will be changed. Lord, we love you and we thank you. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. All right, kids and youth, you all can be dismissed. I will be up here tonight, youth. I expect you to be in your best behavior. Zeke, you're in charge. All right, thank you. Good luck to both of you. Pray for Cassie as they leave. A um, few quick announcements real fast. The ASP house that we have been helping along in building, we are ready to paint that. So if you are able and willing to paint and want to paint, we're going to have a painting party this Saturday. Um, if you can come out for that, you can see Teresa or Danny. If you have questions about it, we can get the address to you. We'll put a, an announcement out on Facebook as well, but that'll be Saturday morning. If you know how to paint, even if you don't know how to paint, you just want to come and fellowship, come on out. It will be a lot of fun, I promise you. If you've not been part of the ASP house and what we've been doing out there as a church to help build that for a family, it's a good time to come and be a part of it this Saturday. We'll put more information on Facebook to come out to be part of the painting party. Also, I wanted to say just quickly, my name is Matt, and I'm usually over and taking care of the youth, the older, the high schoolers down there today. I have the privilege of being up here with you all. Um, but I did want to say, I know Brad talked about it last Wednesday, but just a thank you to you guys as a church for allowing us to go on the youth retreat two weekends ago. It was amazing, truly was. And Brad talked about it, so I won't go over it again. But just thank you all as a church for helping sponsor and pay the way for that. Lives were changed, kids' lives were changed, and still being changed today because of it. But also, thank these four up front. Um, these four right here, as well as Brad Olin, who spoke last week, and then Cassie Jones, who is every Wednesday down in the youth with me helping out, just to spend the weekend volunteering their time to go sleep on a bunk with a very thin mattress and stay up till beyond midnight uh, out of their own time, just it meant a lot for what they're pouring into their kids' lives. But all in all, it was a great weekend, and truly, the kids were top-notch behavior, which was excellent. So as parents, you've done a great job with them. Um, all right, my name is Matt, as I said, and I have the privilege of speaking to you guys tonight. I'm usually in the youth, so I usually have youth-geared messages. I'm very simple, I'm very basic. I like to take a story, some scripture, and go through it and see how it might apply to our life, and that's what I want to do today. I'm not the deep theologian, I'm just simple and basic. So, uh, we are going to be in Exodus, still staying in Exodus as we've been the past several Wednesday nights. We're going to be in Exodus 32 for the most part, I'm going to jump back and forth in a few spots, but Exodus 32 tonight. Josh, I'd love a water if you had a water somewhere. <laughs> oh, wait, never mind. My wife has one. Thank you. Sorry. I'm willing to ask for it if I need it. Exodus 32, verse 9. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. 
then I will make you into a great nation. How's your neck feeling? Every time I ask that question to myself, how's your neck, I do this. You ever wake up with a crick in your neck? Yeah? I hope nobody did today because you'll feel like this message was for you and it wasn't intended that way. <laughs> crick in your neck, I don't know really where that term comes from. I feel like it had to be southern, but I, I don't know that. I didn't look it up. But a crick in your neck, a stiff neck. You can't turn to the left, you can't turn to the right, look up or down. It just hurts. It's miserable. A stiff neck. Before we go into that scripture, I want to talk a little bit about where we're going to go and that scripture how we got to that point, where, where God is saying to Moses, listen, they are a stiff-necked people, the Israelites, my people, God's people, they're a stiff-necked people, and I'm going to wipe them out and start over with you, Moses. How did we get to that point? When we talk about Exodus, if I were to ask you what the book of Exodus is about, most people are going to quickly jump to and say, oh, Exodus is about Moses. It's about Moses as a baby going down the river, becoming the power, getting the people out of Egypt, the Ten Commandments, the Ten Plagues, parting the Red Sea, crossing the Red Sea, going through the desert looking for the promised land, right? That's what we are going to say Exodus is about, and it is. But all throughout Exodus, it is about God's people, the Israelites, and their journey through all these things. So I want to go back and recap, and I know we've talked a lot about Exodus and the stories in there, but I want to recap some of those stories from the viewpoint and the lens of God's people and the Israelite people and see what questions we can ask of ourselves as we look at their character, their responses, and their interactions with God and with Moses. So, starting back, just to have full picture and understanding, God, the Israelites are God's chosen people. They are God's people that he says are his blessing, are his, are his chosen children. And they are in bondage, they are in captivity in Egypt. He raises up Moses, floated down the river. Pharaoh's daughter picked him up. He ended up in Pharaoh's castle, Pharaoh's kingdom, and comes to power. And he goes out in the desert for a while, and he comes back, and God says, you're going to get my people out of captivity through the use of the ten plagues. So the first plagues come through that we, we know. First ones come through, the first few in there, and it makes Pharaoh mad, and he doesn't let the people go, and he makes the Israelites work even more. They have to do even more. They have to produce even more with less material. And they grumble, they complain back to Moses. Moses, just leave us alone. Let us just stay here. You're making it worse for us. They grumble. The first nine plagues are awful. I don't want to live through frogs and locusts and boils and blood and darkness. But the tenth plague, to me, is just gut-wrenching. Just a gut-wrenching plague that happens to the firstborn. Of all the, Israelite, of all, of all the Egyptian families, the angel of the Lord comes and kills the firstborn of all. But the Israelites are saved if they follow God's commands by the sacrifice of a spotless animal, put the blood over the door. They are saved from that. Through that 10th plague, they are then able to be free. Pharaoh says, all right, I've had enough. Get out of here. Go. You are free to leave. So God is faithful and has got them out of bondage, and they take off through the desert. So they're following after Moses through the desert, and they get to the Red Sea. They're faced directly to the Red Sea, and they look to their front, and they see the water, and they look behind them, and they see Pharaoh. Pharaoh is coming after them with his army, ready to I, either, one, either kill them or bring them back and put them into bondage. But Pharaoh is going after them. So here they are looking at the Red Sea on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other. What do they say? Exodus 14, it's up there on the screen. As Pharaoh approached... The Israelites looked up, 
And there were the Egyptians marching after them. They were terrified and cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, Was it because there were no graves in Egypt that you brought us to the desert to die? What have you done to us by bringing us out of Egypt? Didn't we say to you in Egypt, Leave us alone? Let us serve the Egyptians. It would have been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die in the desert. They're complaining, they're grumbling. Now, it's easy for me to sit here and say that about them, and I say this a lot to the kids down there as we're reading through Scripture. We have the blessing that we have this entire book in front of us to be able to read, know, and understand. They didn't have that as they were standing there seeing the water on one side and Pharaoh's army on the other. If I was standing there, I probably would have been shaking too, and I probably would have complained and been scared about what was going to happen too. So I understand that. Even though they just saw the power of God in these ten plagues, and they just saw that they were saved by doing what God said them to do, I still would have been scared. I still would have been a little bit unsure as to what is going to happen. We know what happens. Moses hits the water of the seas part. They cross across the Red Sea on dry land, get to the other side, turn back around as Pharaoh's army is coming in, and the water comes in and destroys Pharaoh's army. They had a front row seat to one of the coolest acts of God ever, right? I was talking to one of my friends about what would be the top three things you would want to see if you could see again. That would be one of my three. I think that would be just so cool. But the Israelites got to see it firsthand. They were front and center to the power of God. Surely at this point, they are not going to forget what their God has done for them and what their God can do for them. They're not going to forget that, right? Three days go by, and they walk through the desert, and they get thirsty. I was thirsty to begin with this thing, and I'm thirsty right now. I made, it, I made it 10 minutes. That wasn't even planned. They made it three days, and they're thirsty. They get to Mara. The water at Mara was bitter. They couldn't drink it. What do they do? 15, Exodus 15, 24. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? Matter three days, now we're going to die of thirst. What are we to drink, Moses? grumbling and complaining against Moses. Did God really bring you this far just for you to die of thirst in the desert? No. He tells Moses, throw this log into the water. It's going to be sweet. Then they can drink it. That's exactly what happens. The Lord made a statute and ordinance for them at Marah, and he tested them there. He said, if you will carefully obey the Lord your God, do what is right in his sight, pay attention to his commands, and keep all his statutes, I will not inflict any illness on you that I inflict on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. He makes a promise with them. Listen to what I say, do as I say, and I'm going to protect you. I'm going to watch after you. You've seen what I can do. You've seen the power. You've seen what I can do for you, what I've already done. This little water miracle right here was nothing compared to parting the Red Sea and you walking across it, yet you already forgot that. Drink up. You're fine. Continue on. They go a few more days, and they're hungry. It's like a toddler, right? First you give them a cookie, then they're thirsty, they want something else. It just goes on and on and on. They're just like a bunch of babies, right? They're hungry. Chapter 16, we're just going one chapter at a time. We see them complaining and grumbling on and on as we go. In the desert, the whole community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The Israelites said to them, if only we had died by the Lord's hand in Egypt. There we sat around pots of meat and ate all the food we wanted. But you have brought us out into this desert to starve this entire assembly to death. Grumbling and complaining. We know again what God does. He sends manna, bread-like food from 
the heavens each and every morning and says, listen, go out there every morning and collect what you need for that day and that day only. Go get the bread each and every day, and I will sustain you. Have faith. Each and every day get bread. But don't get enough for tomorrow because it's going to spoil and go bad. Come back tomorrow and get more bread. This is a little sidebar, but in our life group, we talked about John 6 on Sunday. And it ties very well to this where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Come to me. I am the bread of life. The Old Testament says, come every day, get manna each and every day. Jesus is saying the same thing. Come to him each and every day for your fill. Come to him each and every day. He is the bread of life. He is the word. Come to him each and every day for, to be satisfied. Israelites, you need manna every single day. Christians now, we need the bread of life every single day. We get that from being in the Word every single day. One more. They go again. They have bread. Now they're thirsty again. They, get to, they go a few more days. They get to the desert of sin, and they're thirsty again. And verse 3 says, The people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? The Israelites just don't get it. They just don't trust that God is going to provide for them. They grumble all the way through. My first question for you guys tonight, I've got three questions that I want us to, to think on as we go through this is, what are you grumbling about? What is it that you're grumbling about? And for me, it's, it's, a, it's, it, it's confession time, and I'm already stuttering because I want to be honest, this is not, this is not, one, I got three hard questions that I'm asking of our church, and I'm not the pastor. I'm just, I'm just some guy. So understand this isn't coming from your pastor. Our church, we're not grumbling. We're not complaining. We're not having any of those things. We are serving. We are doing. We are speaking up on stage, testifying and witnessing to what God is doing. Lives are being changed on trips. It is going great within this church, within the church. But what happens when we step back and we leave church and we exit outside of these walls? on Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday, when we're not here. For me, if you'd have caught me on Sunday morning, hey, how are you? I'm great. Everything's great. Everything's awesome. I'm doing awesome. Sunday afternoon, I am grumbling. I am complaining. I am grumbling again, and I am just, ugh. Sunday night, the same. I'm grumbling, and I'm complaining. Monday, I am grumbling, and I'm just, I can't even stand myself, yet I don't come out of it. I'm telling you, I, I, I'm just grumbling about everything. I got to do this and I got to do that. And I got so much and this person's doing this and they're calling me for this. I am just miserable. Until Tuesday morning when I get to my office and I find the time to dive back into this and I get to this point where I see the Israelites grumbling and I'm like, that's me. God, you're telling me to quit grumbling. And you know what? It wasn't that much harder to just put a smile on my face and say, God's got this. I'm going to walk in faith and know that God is going to handle every step of my day today, and then tomorrow he's going to handle every step of the day that way. You know how much better my day was Tuesday and Wednesday than it was Sunday after church and Monday? It was a whole lot better, wasn't it? It was a whole lot better. See, I really only grumbled to one person. <laughs> Everybody else I could put the face on for. But there's only one person that had to deal with my grumbling, and I'm telling you, I was miserable Sunday and Monday. What are you grumbling about? Grumbleness, grumbling is about being selfish. I was being selfish. I was not walking in faith that God got this, and I was being selfish. What was me? What are you grumbling about? Continuing on through Exodus, the Israelites, 
they get to Mount Sinai, again, traveling through the desert. They get to Mount Sinai, and they go up to the mount, and they set up camp at the bottom, and the Spirit of God is in a cloud on top of the mountain. Moses goes to the top, and he, and he gets the Ten Commandments and some other instructions, and he comes back down to talk to the Israelites. And God says, listen, if you'll follow, if you'll listen to these instructions and these rules, these commandments and these things and obey them, you're going to be my people. I'm going to make you a nation among the nations. You will be a blessing to me. You will be my people. Just obey these commands and follow my statutes. The Israelites, yes, we're in. We're going to do it, God. We're going to follow. They got it now. They've seen all he can do. They've got it now. God calls Moses back up to the mountain to give him a few more instructions about a few more things, and I'm going to talk about that, that at the end. He goes up back to the mountain, and the Israelites are still at the bottom of the mountain, painting this picture so you can understand. They're at the bottom. Moses goes to the top, and he's at the top of the mountain, surrounded by a cloud, which is God's presence. They've just confirmed that, hey, we're going to follow with what God has said. We're going to do what he's asked us to do. That brings us to Exodus 32. It's a long intro, but we're already one point down. When the people, Exodus 32, verse 1, when the people saw that Moses delayed in coming down from the mountain, they gathered around Aaron and said to him, come, make gods for us who will go before us because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what has happened to him. Aaron is Moses' brother. He's the one in charge down there while Moses is up there. And the Israelites come to him. It's been, the Bible tells us, 40 days, 40 nights that Moses has been gone. Yes, that's a long time. But you just made this promise with God that you're going to follow through with everything he said. And you want to make an idol. You want to make an idol to worship. And you even say, let's make gods for us who will, bow, who will go before us. Because this Moses, the man who brought us up from the land of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron, of course, doesn't do it, right? He's not going to do that. He's not going to fall victim to that. Nope. He says, oh, that's a great idea. Take off the gold rings that are on your ears, the wives of your sons and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took off the gold rings that were on their ears and brought them to Aaron. He took the gold from them, fashioned it with an engraving tool, and made it into an image of a calf. Then they said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. Who was the gold calf, the one that brought them out of Egypt? Who's going to take gold off their body and make a cow? And then worship the cow, right? Who's going to do that? It doesn't make any sense to us. Who's going to make an idol out of that? The Israelites. The, Israel, the grumbling, grumbling Israelites, that's who. But are we not the same way? We may not make idols that look like that. We're not going to take our wallet out, our precious wallet with all of our money. That might be an idol in itself. And then make a golden cow and worship that. No, we don't have that problem anymore. The Israelites fell victim to first and second commandments. They broke those first two right then and there. But no, if we went and checked your house, you don't have a statue. I'm, I'm pretty sure of that. Pastor Dallas came over to your house. You don't have a statue that you're worshiping or any kind of idols physical like that, right? No, that's not us. John Piper says that anything in the world that successfully competes with our love for God is an idol. And then in 1 John, we see do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in them. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world. 
Little children, keep yourselves from idols. No, we don't worship a golden cow, but I'm pretty sure we worship a lot of things that are not God. I'm pretty sure there are a lot of idols in our lives, and I'm saying our lives, that we put ahead of God. Again, Life Group, we talked about what we put ahead of us, what we put ahead of going to God each and every day for bread. What are those things that we put in front of Him each and every day? Busy schedules, work, sports, our kids, sleep, the gym, whatever it is, whatever, whatever it is that keeps you from spending time with God, whatever it is that trumps your time with God, that's an idol. God says, put me first. Put me first. It's not even God's number one and then your family and this is number two and three and then we have this pyramid necessarily. It is everything should flow out of a love for Christ. It starts with Christ. And if everything flows out of that, your love for Christ first and then it flows out the way you treat people at work or the way you handle your kids when they make you mad or the way you handle your finances when things are tight or when things are good, that's what God calls us to do. That's what God calls us to do. That's putting him first. But I think if we're being honest with ourselves, and I ask you, my question number two, what's your idol? What is it that you put ahead of God? There's something that comes to mind. And the reality is, when you identify what that is and you know it, it's a sin to keep going back to it because we are putting something else ahead of God. And I am guilty of that each and every day. Each and every day. What's your idol? What is it that you put ahead of God? Verse number seven. Get some more water. The Lord spoke to Moses, go down at once. For your people you brought up from the land of Egypt have acted corruptly. They have quickly turned from the way I commanded them. They have made for themselves an image of a calf. They have bowed down to it, sacrificed to it, and said, Israel, these are your gods who brought you up from the land of Egypt. The Lord also said to Moses, I have seen this people, and they are indeed a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone so that my anger can burn against them and I can destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. There's the stiff-necked part. That's what really started this whole thing. I've read through Exodus a few times, through the Old Testament a few times, and every time I get to this, because again, I'm the youth, youth guy, I see this word stiff-necked, and I just think it's funny. I just, it always catches my attention. What is a stiff-necked person? This is the first time God calls his people stiff-necked. He actually calls them stiff-necked about eight or nine more times through Exodus, Numbers, and Leviticus. He calls them stiff-necked. What is stiff-necked? Stubborn, ornery, unwilling to be led, unwilling to turn. Stiff-necked. I, just, I like that word. I think, I think it's funny. Until it's not. And you understand what he's saying. See, God spoke and Jesus spoke in ways that the people would understand things that made sense to them. This is a farming term. I'm not a farmer. I had to look it all up. But being stiff-necked was when they went to put a yoke on an oxen and the oxen wouldn't turn. They had an ox goad with a stick and a prong on it that they'd hit on the neck to try and get to turn to the left or to the right or stop or go forward. But if that oxen wouldn't respond to it, they'd say he had a stiff neck. 
If an ox was hard to control or stubborn, it was hard of neck or stiff-necked. Hence the figure was used in the Scriptures to express the stubborn, untractable spirit of a people not responsive to the guiding of their God. Being stiff-necked means you're not responsive to the guiding of God. The Israelites had proven over and over that, hey, they're, yes, we're going to follow you, God, but then they go back to where they were. Yes, they want to do this, but then they got to start grumbling. Then they're going to put an idol in front of God. God said, you're a stiff-necked people. I'm through with you. Stiff-necked. Stubborn. We call it stubbornness. That's a word I think we can get around a little bit more, being stubborn. Stubborn as a mule, right? Everybody knows that, being stubborn. Being stubborn is rooted back in pride. If there's something you're being stubborn about, something that you don't want to give up, something that you don't want to change, it's because you know better. Something that God has said, you need to do this, or you need to change this, or you need to live a different way, and you don't want to, it's because you know better. Your pride says, I know better than you, God. I'm not going to change it. You're unwilling to be led. We are unwilling to be led when we're stiff-necked. One of the things that I've heard before is that, well, that's always how I've been. I've always been that way. That's how God made me. God made me that way. I can't, I can't, I can't change who I am. I've said that a lot. Yeah, God made you that way. But when you accepted Christ, you became a new creation. You became a new creation that God says, I'm going to shape and mold you into the image of me if you will allow me to do so, if you will be if you will allow me to lead you. So that excuse of being stubborn of, well, that's how I always am. I'm not going to change. That's just who I am. Deal with it. Get over it. That does not work when you are a Christian because God has made you into something new and he says you should be shaped and changed and molded into my image now. It doesn't work. We've said it a lot, but it doesn't work for those of us that are believers. Question number three Where are you being stiff-necked in your life? What are you too stubborn to let go of? It's rooted back in pride. What is it that you need to say, God, you know better than me? Because you want to be led by the Lord? You can't have a stiff neck. You can't be rooted in pride. You have to humble yourself and let him lead you and let him guide you. Worship team, you guys can come. It may have been five minutes or ten minutes, I don't know. <laughs> or 25 minutes, I don't know. Worship team, you guys can come. I'm going to finish the story about Moses and the golden calf and what happens. Because God does not then smite his people. He doesn't kill them all. Moses goes to God and says, wait, 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 wait. This is not who you are. This is not the God that you said that you are. This is not who you are to these people. God says, okay, go back down there. So Moses goes back down. And I think Moses was thinking, you know, it's not that bad. I'm going to get back down there. It's not going to be that bad. Moses gets to the bottom of the mountain, and he hears what is described as a war cry. The Israelites are dancing, partying, having a good old time, dancing around this golden calf. Moses has two tablets that the Lord had written out for him that he slams to the ground and they break. 
and he gets the calf and he shatters the calf and he grinds it up into a powder, sprinkles it on the water and says, drink it. I love the Bible. The stories are so cool. Makes them drink it. And then he goes to the Levites and says, if you're with me, get over here. And the Levites come to him and they get swords and they go through the camp and they kill 3,000 people. They believe the ones that initiated and instigated the whole mess. There had to be a punishment. The following day, Exodus 32, verse 30, Moses said to the people, you have committed a grave sin. Now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I will be able to atone for your sin. There had to be an atonement. The Old Testament, they knew when there was a sin, there had to be shedding of blood to cover that. And Moses says, I'm going to go up there and I'm going to try and atone for your sin. Moses returned to the Lord and said, oh, these people have committed a grave sin. They have made a God of gold for themselves. Now, if you would only forgive their sin, but if not, please erase me from the book you have written. Moses is like, listen, forgive their sin, please. If not, take me. Take me as the payment for this sin. God says, whoever has sinned against me, I will erase from my book. Now go lead the people to the place I told you about. See, my angel will go before you. But on the day I settle accounts, I will hold them accountable for their sin. God told Moses, no, no, that's not your place. That's not your spot. You're not perfect, Moses. You're not the perfect lamb. You have sin. I cannot sacrifice you for the sins of the people. I've got a better plan coming. I've got someone that is going to be perfect, that is perfect, that is going to walk blamelessly their entire life and they're going to die on the cross for the sins of all my people. That's the one that can make atonement for all the sin. That's the one that can make atonement for the grumbling and for the idols and for the stiff neck in your life. That's the one that is going to do it. See, when I said that Moses had to go back up to the mount that second time, it's because God wanted his people, he wanted to dwell with his people. He wanted to give Moses instructions on building a tent for him to reside in, in the ark and all these things. He wanted to go through these specific instructions, six chapters of instructions of, hey, this is how I want this to be set up. So my presence can be with the people because I want to dwell with the people. I want to be with the people. Guess what God wants to do in our lives? And guess what he does when we accept him? He dwells with the people. His holy presence dwells with us. 1 Corinthians 3.16, don't you yourselves know that you are God's temple and that the spirit of God lives in you? He dwells inside each and every one of us that have accepted him. But here's the thing. When you live your life grumbling and selfish and complaining all the time, and you have idols in your life that don't allow him to lead you, you're then stiff-necked, and he cannot lead you. He cannot lead you in the direction that he wants you to go. You cannot hear him if you're focused on yourself. You cannot be led if your life is full of selfishness, stubbornness, and being stiff-necked. That's something that is so hard to do, and it's something that you have to lay down each and every day. Each and every morning, you have to get up and die to yourself. We see that in the New Testament. We know over and over again, you have to die to yourself because the things of this world, 
they come at us. And I'm thankful right now that we have a church that is pointing us that direction and encouraging us each and every day. We have people stepping up, speaking out in testimony, sharing things that I feel like had the Israelites had this, had the Israelites stepped back and said, well, wait a minute, wait a minute. Do you remember when God parted the Red Sea for us? No, we're not going to bring this idol up. If people would have stepped up and shared and spoke, like we're seeing right now in our congregation, people stepping up and saying, guess what? I've walked through this. I've walked through that. I've experienced this. That is what we are to do as a church body. Continue to equip each other, strengthen each other, and encourage each other. If there's something in your life that you find that is hindering you from seeking after him each and every day, from allowing him to lead you, I invite you to leave it up here at the altar. Father, I thank you for today. God, I thank you for your word. God, I thank you that every time I get into it, I learn something. That every time you teach me something and you say, hey, it may not be for them, but son, it's for you. God, I just thank you that you're so faithful each and every time I open up your word. I love you and I thank you. In your name I pray, amen.